just have your Bible open to Ephesians 3. I'll have a lot of the scriptures up here today. I'll refer to a few uh, outside of, of, of cross-reference scriptures to make my point here. But let's just, let's, today we're going to be dealing with Paul's revel, revelation and Paul's prayer. And as I stated last week, as, uh, you know, teaching a, a book verse by verse, uh, like we're going to do in the, in the book of Ephesians, and I did last week on chapter 2, uh, <clears throat> it forces you to do something. It forces you to say what the section of Scripture can only say. I can only draw out of it what it means. I can't, I can't speak into it what it doesn't mean. I can't, speak, I can't read into it what I want it to mean. We come from a, a segment of Christendom. As, uh, I'm going to use the word Pentecostal believers. We believe in the continuation of spiritual gifts that uh, we're known to be extremely subjective. In other words, uh, we, we have experiences that no one else can define, like the Lord told me or the Lord showed me. Well, I, I can't verify that or unverify that because it's not objective. It's something personally within you. And a lot of times we'll say, the Lord showed me what this scripture means. Uh, I want to just erase 2,000 years of church history in what this verse means or or what scholars say this verse means, or what linguistics say this verse means, the Lord showed me what this verse means. Or, I want it to say, and usually if we're on a particular drumbeat on a particular topic, we start reading that topic into every verse altogether. So I, I'm going to tie my, this topic I have, I'm going to read it everywhere I go. Well, when you teach verse by verse, you, you can't do that. It can only mean what it was meant to mean, and we have to draw that out. We can't inject into it. The other challenge is, of course, this, is to make it inspirational versus informational. In other words, going verse by verse sometimes can get bogged down because you can lose the heart of a message. Uh, people will say, well, what's the one thing they're going to take away today? Well, you're not going to preach on 21 verses as I'm going to today. You're going to walk away with one thing. Okay, there's a number of themes. My prayer is that whatever the Holy Spirit wants to highlight to you, that that is what he's going to highlight. And so I hope I hit you with a lot of nuggets. It'll be different for each person. But we do have there's six goals in chapter 3 today that I want to just kind of get your mind wrapped around. The first is to understand this, that revelation is costly. Now, when I use the word revelation, revelation means to disclose. Something that was covered is uncovered. So, in other words, the light gets turned on in me. I, I, I discover something I didn't uh, know before. I see something I didn't see before by the help of the Word and the help of the Holy Spirit. But it's going to cost you. Whether your revelation is that Jesus is God, which is a revelation I had some 44 years ago, and when I had that revelation that Jesus actually was God and he was who he said he was, he, he, couldn't, be a, he couldn't just be a good teacher, okay? Or he just couldn't be a, just a prophet because he didn't give us wiggle room for that. Like C.S. Lewis said, he was either a lunatic, a liar, or he, he was who he was. He thought he was God and he wasn't. I'd be a lunatic. He knew he wasn't God, but he convinced people that he was being a fraud or a liar or he was who he w said he was, the Son of God. He only fits in one of three slots. That's what you get. You can't, you can't rub it and shape it and stretch it any other way. And I came to that revelation. It was a great revelation, but it cost me a lot in my life. 
that particular revelation. Maybe a revelation that miracles are for today. And so you contend for something. Other people think you're kind of on another planet and, and uh, you kind of lose friendships or people think that you're weird because of a revelation maybe that you have. Revelations we're going to see in this chapter because Paul's going to give us some autobiographical sketches of himself, Casas. The second thing we want to understand today is that the church was God's secret plan before time began. And uh, this means that we can actually rest in, in a God who's in control of the universe. I mean, we get kind of really all full of anxiety because of the news and tensions and reports around the world and this and that and the other. I was just reading out of my devotions this morning. I'll give you my devotional thought out of Psalm 93. I love this. And it says in verse 2, Psalm 93 out of the NET, your throne has been secure from ancient times. You have always been king. It doesn't matter what's going on. God's on the throne. Amen? And he's up to something. He's just not passively up there. He's doing a thing he said he would do in Matthew 16. Upon this rock, the revelation of who I am, I'm going to build my church. And because of that, we can rest that God's in control of the universe and he's, he's working to accomplish and to build something. And uh, the fo our focus needs to be on what God has been doing throughout church history and in our present time, not on what the devil's doing but God. If you want to focus on the devil, if somehow you're entertained by that, I, I guess you have the right to do that, but it's a lot, I think, a lot funner, a lot more edifying to think about all the great things God's doing. The third thing is this, is that we need to understand that the church, that the church reveals God's wisdom uh, <clears throat> to the angelic realm, including the angelic powers that Jesus defeated on the cross. As you're going to see, God kept this plan he calls it a mystery, but we're going to come up with a definition today, really simple, God's secret plan, that he didn't reveal to the councils of heaven, he didn't reveal to the angelic realms, he kept it to himself, and he reveals his plan now through his church what he's been up to, and uh, we're a part of that, we're a mirror that reflects what God has been up to, that's communicating to the heavenly realms, this is what God's done, including our good friend Lucifer, Satan, and God's going to show him what he's done through the cross to humiliate and embarrass him. The fourth thing is this, is to pursue the true nature of ministry. Paul, in this chapter, actually gives us uh, some autobiographical insight and understanding about his own ministry. And it's going to give us insight about the nature of ministry. We'll get to that as we go through that. Two more things that we could get out of this today. One is to embrace and to yield to the two key gifts that God gives every one of us here. One is power. you got more power in you than you realize. Chapter 1, Paul said that you might understand that power that even raised Jesus from the dead and raised him up high above all principalities and powers and made him the head of the church. That that power is in you, that you might understand that. We think of power only that maybe someone got healed or a miracle took place, but man, power is what keeps your motor going. 
Power is what you, you go, it gets you through the trials and the storms that you go through and the disappointments of life and the setbacks and the stresses and the pressures and everything else. That's power in you. Power gets you to lift yourself above yourself and your carnal nature and everything else. There's, a, there's power working through you and it's all driven by love. And so we're going to look at those two key gifts. And lastly, we're going to understand that the church is the product of God's work for God's eternal glory. He ends this thing by saying, unto him be glory in the church versus who's who in the kingdom of God. Sometimes I get around pastors and my colleagues and, you know, we're all reading books. I got a few books that I'm, uh, I'm reading right now and uh, one is by Robert Morris and uh, reading one book by him and I always got three or four books that I read. But I, I also spend a lot of time reading dead guys. People who are dead. Okay, but they still speak. Okay, books like were written like a hundred years ago. Okay, those types of books, and you know, so when I bring them up, no one's kind of, oh, what book is that? I, I like to read dead guys. Okay, I like I like to read Wesley, and I like to read Philip Schaff's history, and I love to I love to read guys that uh, are now with Jesus, but they still speak, and and I and I, and I love theology, and I, I love just to read the Bible, and so so I'm not always up on all the books, but sometimes I'm around leaders and hey did you read this you read that you read that you read that so and so said this they're doing this and so and and, and sometimes in the conversation you know you, I, uh, what about Jesus I, I haven't heard anybody mention his name here in the last few minutes and uh it's just who's who it's who's what and who says this and 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 what about his word not one of you like cracked open the bible says man this is what God's been really speaking to me about out of his word Come on, unto him be glory in the church. And I appreciate his ministries. I embrace them. I submit to them. I learn from them. I grow from them because Jesus gave them to us as a gift. But at the end, the talk should be about him. You know, one of the things I appreciated about what was known as the Jesus people movement back in the 60s and the, and the charismatic movement out of the Catholicism and, and formal churches is that there were very few personalities I mean, we're, there were garages filled with people and backyards and swimming pools and house churches and churches on the beach and, and coffee shops, and, and you couldn't keep track of who's who. It wasn't, it wasn't really a part of the conversation. I mean, I didn't know who's who for a long time, even after becoming a follower of Jesus. We've got to get back to him be the center of our attention and our conversation, him get, become the, the one who gets glorified. So let's start by talking about how Paul presents himself in chapter 3. Paul sees himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Not if Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ. I didn't correct that. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this cause, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Interesting statement, more profound than it may seem apparent right out of the gate. He's writing this letter from prison. This is a prison epistle. He's in jail. <clears throat> As one writer put it, he can hear the sound of his chains uh, rattling while writing. I thought that was kind of poetic and deep. I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. But he's not viewing himself as a victim. He's not blaming Nero, who was really responsible for him being there. He's not blaming the Jews because they forced the issue for him to get arrested. 
He understands that he's there because of what Jesus, the message that Jesus gave him. He was there because of the very people he was to carry that message to. And he was there because of the message he gave them about how they can become a, a part of God's people. And it didn't quite meet the expectations of his day, but he was there as a result of his message and was just a part of the package, and he submits to it. It's interesting in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, when Paul receives his first prophetic instruction from Ananias, and uh, the Lord said to him, to Ananias, to give to Paul, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. That was his mission. Those are the people he was called to, and as a result of that built into the package, he was going to be persecuted. So he was in jail because of what he was called to do. And he recognized that. He wasn't grumbling. This is all part of the will of God. I was listening to Jim Caviezel last night on a YouTube thing. I, I, I like Jim Caviezel a lot. I think he's quite a unique Christian of our time. And uh, he said, you know, some people want uh, the gospel to be like sugar in their coffee. They just want it nice and sweet. It's nice and nice. But sometimes coffee has a bitter taste. And sometimes Christianity has a bitter element to it. And, and uh, things that would say otherwise are not as popular. So Paul continues now in this. And he says that he was given a ministry by God's grace. He makes this, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now remember, God's grace is God's undeserving kindness. It's God's undeserving power and enablement that he gives us. It's favor. Some people want to camp on that part, yes. But it's also force. It's something mightily working in us. I look at grace like this. I, I think God loves me just like he loves you in an intense way. But he, does, he loves me so much, he, he has something else for me to do and someone else he wants me to be besides who I am and what I'm doing. He wants to shape me. He's like a loving trainer. Coming to the gym, just hugs me, Bob, how you doing today? I was up late last night putting your workout together and so excited about today and, you know, smiling and this is going to be good. We're moving you forward. And, and the next thing I know, 10 minutes later, I'm in the bathroom vomiting and he's just yelling in there, are you in there? Come on out. You're just beginning your workout. Okay. Come on, high five, that's good. Come on, let's get back into it. Full of love and stretching me and working me and changing me and doesn't seem to blink an eye when it's painful. But he loves me deeply. We, we have to join these two together, don't we? Grace was mightily working in the Apostle Paul. And God entrusted a message to Paul and gave him the power to submit to his will and basically... Every, and carry it out and everything he was going to face in that. And this message was a message of grace, that the Gentiles could now be a part of God's people without keeping the Mosaic law. And that is really what got Paul in trouble, was his message. It wasn't that he embraced Jesus as the Messiah, per se. It was that he understood what God was doing and bringing all races together and one thing, one new humanity, as I'm using that term, called the church. And that's what got him in prison. He was in prison because of his message about the church and who gets to come in and how they get to come in. He's there. And notice when he says this, that I was given grace that was given to me for 
you. For you. In other words, ministry is not about me. Ministry or ministry is not about you. Ministry is about them. Whatever you have a ministry in the church, whatever your ministry is, you got to grasp that this ministry is not about me. It's about the people or who are going to be impacted by this ministry. And you got to understand that when you are living out your ministry, that you got to have the attitude, i got to go to the back of the line. Because it's not about me, it's about them. I love Phil Rakos in our church, and, and uh, if you've been around Phil, Phil always works hard to be the last guy in, the li- in line. Even if we have a banquet table, he won't eat until everybody eats. He's just, oh, no, i got to go back of the line, back of the line. i got to be in the back of the line. That's what Phil does. I try to compete with him, but he beats me at it. And uh, I was talking to a bunch of pastors about it in Uganda, but, and they got really impressed by that story. But, uh, so Bill, I, Bill is famous around the world. Phil, you are. Now, he goes on to say that a revelation was given to Paul that was a mystery up to that time. That's what we need to understand. Mystery up to that time. I'm just going to call mystery basically a secret plan. Something that was unknown that's known now. We're going to use the word secret plan to to keep it simple today. And he says here in verse 3 and 4 how the... find my place on my own how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery the secret plan of Christ now Paul wasn't alone on this God's secret plan was being revealed to the first century apostles and prophets he goes on to say in which was not made known to the sons was not made known to the to the sons of men and other generations that is in the Old Testament, as it is now, which has been received, revealed, excuse me, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And we saw last week in chapter 2, when Paul described the church, all these races and nations and ethnic groups coming together by faith in Jesus into one body, they're built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. So this revelation that Paul has wasn't just shared by him alone. Other apostolic leaders of his day and the prophets of the first century New Testament church were receiving the same revelation from the Old Testament and bringing it to the present reality that this is this thing called the church. One of the classic ones is what's called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 when a Jewish apostolic council is trying to figure out what do we do with all all the Gentile converts, especially from those from Antioch. What do we do? And they had to make a decision that they're not bound by the law. They can come to God by faith in the work of Christ. Okay, so there's a revelation going on, and they went to Old Testament scriptures. James stood up and said, oh, this is what Amos talked about. Then the last days I will restore the tabernacle of David that was fallen, and and I'll I'll build up its ruins. And so therefore, all the Gentiles are going to come in. My name's going to be known among all the nations. And so he talked about that. They were drawn from Old Testament scriptures. So what is the secret plan of God? Paul lays it out, verse 6. The plan is this. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. All the other races and nations that are non-Jewish are fellow heirs, fellow inheritors of God's promises. They're members of the same body. They're a part of the church and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
You know, in Romans 15, 6, Paul says, with one voice we may glorify God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. One voice. Whether you're African or Chinese or Caucasian or you're Latino, it doesn't matter. With one voice. Whether you're Gentile or Jew, with one voice. Well, to do that, we need to understand how we get in. Paul had that in. Of course, this is, as I said, this is what, this is what got Paul in trouble. He's in jail because of this verse. Now, we think he's in jail for all because he's just a radical preacher, but he's really in jail. What provoked this thing was this message because they thought he threw away his Jewish faith and it was, he, was, he was driven to be arrested by his own people because of this particular message. Now, you know, sometimes, and even throughout church history, when my my revelation or something the Holy Spirit's leading me to leads me to what I'm going to call undesirables, people we don't think should belong part of the church, usually persecution will follow. We, we, we like to look at church history from this point backwards and say, man, look what God did. But, but if we were there, we would have seen there was great struggles to embrace what God did. I mean, no one liked the hippies coming into the church in its day. You imagine being Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, about 12,000 young people gave their life to Jesus in three months. Kind of changed the church culture. Okay. So, you know, and all of a sudden, waves of people come in who might be different than you and I, and might have different political views than you and I, and different social habits than you and I, different attitudes than you and I, and all in here, and they come in by the droves. They'll change the, the nature and the culture of the church that fast. We've got to figure out, we've got to find the footsteps of Jesus and what he's doing in the midst of all that. It just happens. We don't think it's going to happen to us. We think we have a more open attitude, but we always do. And Paul is embracing the world, saying, come on into the party. Come on, Jesus has something for you. And he ended up in jail over that. Now what Paul does here is he, Paul is going to divert here. He's going to divert and he's going to give us insight into the nature of ministry. And he says these words then in verse 6. Paul's always diverting. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable. Let's put the word the inexhaustible. Let's put the phrase beyond us completely comprehending. Riches of Christ. How many people would agree with me? We still have a lot to learn about Jesus. And, we have a, and God has more things he's going to show us throughout time. Come on, the treasures and the riches of Christ are deep and unsearchable and inexhaustible. And we get to dig for them. But I want to draw your, your attention to a phrase in this verse where Paul said this, though I am the very least of all the saints. That grabs me a little bit. In all of Paul's writings, there is a, there's a self-abasement that's beyond rhetoric. It's not just, yeah, I'm just saved by grace, it's all his glory, it's because we're supposed to say stuff like that. But there's something deep within the psyche 
of this apostle where he was absolutely convinced that he wasn't just the least of all ministries. He was the least of all of God's people. Now, we would try to get counseling for Paul. We would try to set him up with a counselor, a psychologist, and okay, what's, what's going on here? He deeply felt that he was the most unworthy of all Christians because he had persecuted the church. I was, I was deeply moved, and I, I'm going to try something here. I'll see how technically I mess it up here. But I was deeply, I was deeply um, moved by a movie I saw two years ago. You may have seen it. It was called Paul, the Apostle of Christ. Now, I'm going to go on record. I really don't like Christian movies because I, I don't like things that are not excellent. And sometimes they're just kind of, life is a little cheery, you know, and 90 minutes there's a conflict and God just does all these miracles and I'm a pastor and it doesn't quite work that way in my church. But, uh, so I don't, you know, I appreciate the efforts and they're, and they're actually getting better and I applaud them, but I, I don't always enjoy them. But, but this one really grabbed my attention. I think it was Jim Caviezel actually produced it. James Faulkner, who is a British actor. I don't know his faith. He was in Game of Thrones and a number of other shows and, and movies. He plays the Apostle Paul, and I think he, he does a great job of, of, of showing his nature and possibly what Paul was like. The movie takes a position on Paul's thorn. You may disagree with this, but for dramatic license and emphasis, just flow with me here. And that throughout the movie, Paul has torments, basically his last days in the Mamertine prison, Luke's with him, he's writing down the book of Acts with Luke, and he's writing his letters to Timothy, his second epistle to Timothy, and right before he's going to get beheaded. But he talks about these tormenting dreams, and throughout the movie he wakes up with these nightmares of people that he was responsible for, their death, their imprisonment, and their persecution. And he said he, this was his thorn. They interpret his thorn as the absolute guilt that he uh, experienced because of what he did to God's people. You can imagine if the carnage that took place and you live with the reality of that the rest of your life. You can put yourself in his shoes and what that might be like to you. He asked Jesus to remove it. And I, I think it's got credence to it. I just think if, it's, if I'm wrong, it still makes, a great, still makes great preaching. Jesus uh, said, no, my grace will sustain you. The movie ends uh, with his journey to his beheading. And in this, you see the church scattered and, and fleeing out of Rome because of Nero's persecution. And, uh, but you hear the narration of Paul's second letter to Timothy, his goodbye letter, as he's going to his beheading. And then he enters into a place of an eternal state. And there at the gate, there at the gate receiving him, are all the people he persecuted to greet him and embrace him into eternity. 